It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Monday, July 6, 2020. On a special live presentation of the show today, we have Dr. Joe Schwartz. Dr. Joe, welcome. Thanks very much. Well, in this era of COVID-19, doesn't mean that every other medical problem disappears, even though we are so focused on this uh, scourge. But unfortunately, there are other diseases that are still with us. And the one that really strikes into everyone's heart, the arrow of terror, is cancer. It is just a horrific word, and obviously there is a lot of concern about it. So we will discuss this uh, disease today, and especially what we may be able to do about it in terms of uh, dietary intervention. The word cancer comes from the Latin uh, meaning crab. And the reason for that is that uh, even way back then in ancient Roman times, they recognized tumors, external tumors on the body, and they kind of look like the shape of a crab with the blood vessels coming out of the growth uh, like the legs of a crab. So that's where our expression cancer uh, comes from. And it is a devastating disease. Uh, more than half a million people in North America die of cancer every year. And if you want to put that in a more mundane way, it's about 1,500 a day. That's a lot of people. Uh, uh, obviously these days, uh, this is rivaled by the number of people who are dying from uh, COVID. But of course, these are not mutually exclusive events. So just because there are people dying from COVID doesn't mean that, that they're not dying from, uh, from cancer. Although there probably are somewhat fewer dying from cancer because some of those patients uh, uh, have uh, what we call a comorbidity so that uh, you know, they are more at risk for uh, COVID and they will be counted as dying from uh, COVID. Okay, the incidence of cancer. This of course is something that we're all interested in. What is the pattern? And as you can see, uh, the latest statistics we have are, are from about 2017. And generally what uh, one looks at is the rate per 100,000 of population. That is how many people are diagnosed uh, per 100,000 uh, population. And uh, there are a couple of striking things uh, when you look at this uh, graph. First of all, that the mortality, the death rate from cancer is going down. And uh, that is because treatments are uh, improving and uh, people are living longer with cancer and therefore have the chance of uh, dying from some other disease before they die of, uh, of cancer. Now, the incidence. This, of course, is what we are really interested in, is the number of uh, new cases that are diagnosed. And when you take a look at the combined male and female incidence, uh, you see that uh, uh, over the last uh, decade or so, there has been a downward trend. And that from a maximum around 1990. Now, why was there an increase up to, up to then? There are several possibilities for that. Uh, one is the introduction of uh, novel diagnostic methods. So many cancers which were not being seen before were, were diagnosed because of the introduction of uh, MRI imaging, for example, that was a, a, a big player in this game. And uh, also uh, because of the decrease in estrogen supplements given to menopausal women which uh, we'll see in a minute, increase the incidence of cancer. 
because that basically is not done anymore. So uh, any link to estrogen supplementation uh, has been uh, basically reduced and therefore the incidence has gone down. Oh, certainly when we look at this, we see that there is no cancer epidemic, contrary to what some popular bloggers say and the headlines that we may see in, in newspapers. There's no epidemic. Of course, that doesn't mean that there uh, is not uh, enough of a reason to take a careful look at what the patterns are. And uh, overall, as we saw, the rate is pretty well constant, but there are some uh, rates that are going down and some that are, are going up. Uh, for example, as you can see, thyroid cancer is one that is, is, is growing up, uh, increasing. Pancreatic cancer is, is somewhat increasing, although we are talking about very small percentages, 2% per, uh, per year. Uh, the one that is uh, disturbing is this one. Childhood cancers are, uh, are rising. Not really sure why this is. Uh, whether it's chemicals in the environment, uh, which is you know, a very real uh, possibility. Uh, because in, in this case, I don't think we're looking at better diagnostic methods. I think here we are really looking at uh, risks that are, are real. And it probably is uh, uh, something to do with diet, something to do with uh, uh, chemicals in, in the environment. Uh, again, we're not talking about a large increase here, it's less than 2% a year, but it's something that we certainly do have to be uh, aware of. As far as breast cancer goes, once again, you see that since about the year 2000, uh, it really has been decreasing. And uh, it was increasing from about 1980 up to, to that point. And that increase, I think, uh, can be attributed to the increased prescriptions for menopausal women for estrogen supplements, because estrogen supplements certainly reduce uh, the severity of menopausal symptoms. But um, there's no question now that they also increase the risk of uh, the so-called estrogen positive breast cancers. So whereas it used to be quite routine to prescribe uh, estrogen supplements to women as soon as they reach their age of, of menopause, uh, this is no longer done. Uh, of course, it doesn't mean that um, this is totally valueless because certainly in some cases, the menopausal symptoms are, are so debilitating that um, it is worthwhile to take the small risk and uh, increase breast cancer to make life livable. But the reason that we saw this uh, significant decrease since the year 2000, I, I think is likely due to the fact uh, that estrogen supplementation has been cut way back. Now, when we look around the world, there certainly are patterns of cancer. And uh, this implies that there are local environments which are responsible for, uh, for cancer. For example, as you can see, uh, melanoma is uh, far more prevalent in Australia. And uh, this is not surprising because this is a sunshine-related uh, cancer. Uh, but stomach cancer varies around the world. Uh, so does lung cancers, uh, so does prostate cancer. So it is interesting to take a look at some of these patterns and see why this, this may be. And there are some, uh, some numbers here that stick out quite significantly. Uh, for example, if we take a look at uh, breast cancer, and breast cancer in North America, and these are American figures, but they pretty well apply to Canada as, as well, you can see that the breast cancer 
uh, incidence in North America is, is far greater than that in India and greater than in, in Japan. Why is this? And uh, again, it's some sort of lifestyle factor, probably something to do with the diet. The same thing goes for prostate cancer. And uh, both breast cancer and prostate cancer are hormone-driven cancers. And uh, so th this is where the issue of uh, uh, so-called environmental uh, endocrine disruptors may come into play. These are hormone-like chemicals that are found in the environment. And there's a slew of them many of them natural occurring and many of them, of course, uh, synthetic. So by looking at uh, this data, really all we can say is that there are differences around the world in cancer patterns, which implies that there is something uh, more than just uh, genetics. Now, of course, you cannot rule out genetics uh, because certainly uh, the Indian population is genetically different from the North American population, from the Japanese population. Uh, but uh, when we look at the Japanese, when they move to North America, they take on the same cancer pattern as people born in North America. So it is not likely to be genetic. There's some, some, something environmental that is, is going on. And when we think of environment, the most likely contributor is what we eat because everybody eats and we know that um, food is composed of a complex mixture of chemicals. And uh, obviously food is the only raw material that ever goes into our body. So it must play a role in, in nutrition. So based upon the, the kind of numbers that we were just looking at, researchers have estimated that about 30 to 40% of all cancers in the world, and that is a lot, uh, that's about 4 million cases a year, can be prevented by paying attention to these environmental factors. Uh, it's just that we don't know exactly what it is that we need to pay attention uh, to, what those factors are. But there is some uh, revealing information. We know, for example, that there are a number of studies that are, are carried out with specific foods, taking a look at what people eat and seeing the incidence of, of cancer in, in populations that consume significant amounts of those foods. But it's confusing. As you can see, for virtually every food that we're looking at here, there are some studies that say that eating those foods decreases the cancer risk. Some say that it increases the cancer risk. There's only one which uh, seems to be non-controversial, and that's bacon. Uh, nobody has come across a study that shows that bacon reduces the incidence of, of cancer. But for others, there's variability, even for things like beef. Now, certainly there are more studies that show an increased incidence, but there are some that show a, a decrease. And so it goes for eggs and cheese and milk and virtually everything that we're looking at here. In the case of tomatoes, yes, there are far more studies showing that it reduces the risk of cancer, but there are some that show that it increases it. How can this be? Well, because it is very, very difficult to do nutritional studies. Uh, these are usually done by people filling out questionnaires about what they ate, and these are, are, are notoriously uh, unreliable. Uh, then there's also the, the possibility that, that we're mixing conventional produce with organic produce together in, in, in these uh, surveys. And it may be that uh, there's a difference between eating conventional tomatoes and eating or organic uh, tomatoes. 
And of course, the amounts are always important. Uh, so when you look at these studies, you have to take a look to see uh, what, how did they come to the conclusion? How many tomatoes were the people eating in, in the studies that showed an increase? How many were they eating in the studies that showed a decrease? So we have a lot of confounding factors here, but it is interesting to know that almost for everything, there are studies that go in either direction, although generally more in one than the other. As you can see, sugar, there are far more studies to suggest that there is a link to cancer uh, and very few studies that show that, that sugar is a preventative for, for cancer. Of course, the, the problem is with these studies is controlling for everything else that is being eaten. So it may be, for example, that in, in, in the case of sugar, uh, the population that showed that decrease in incidence of, of cancer uh, was also a population that was eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, which countered the amount of sugar that they, they eat. But the studies certainly suggest uh, that a diet that is mostly plant-based is what we should be looking at. And, uh, you know, when we say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, well, yeah, those pounds uh, of vegetables and fruits are really what is important. And this is, is really becoming sort of common knowledge. Uh, you don't have to be uh, cognizant of the scientific literature. You don't have to be highly educated to have heard the message that eating lots of fruits and lots of vegetables is, is a good thing uh, to be uh, doing. Now, this, of course, is based on, on, on studies. But as I just suggested before, you can find studies to back up virtually every point of view that you have. So I'm just giving you some random examples here. Here's one, a study that showed that five or more servings of fruit a day lowered the risk of prostate cancer by 50%. That's an interesting finding. And that 2,000 milligrams a day of calcium didn't matter if it came from food or from supplements. It increased the risk of advanced prostate cancer by 300%. Now, of course, uh, we also have to remember that a large percentage increase in a very small number is still a very small number. So while uh, you reduce the risk of prostate cancer by 50%, uh, if the risk is very small to start with, uh, then even a 50% decrease in risk isn't going to give you, uh, you know, all that much of a, a benefit. But once again, not all studies concur. Uh, here you can see an article about uh, recent studies that found no association between increased fruit and vegetable consumption and decreased cancer risk. And again, we are constantly saddled with the, the problem of confounding factors. Uh, when you're comparing these two populations, did they have equal activity? Uh, you know, or maybe one population was more sedentary than the, the other. Maybe there was far more consumption of some specific fruits and vegetables. So it is really very difficult to tease out meaningful data. But this is where the science comes in. That's what one tries to do. You do lots of experiments, each one contributing maybe only a smidgen of knowledge, but when you put it all together, you hope to kind of get a clear picture. And this is what the International Agency for Research on Cancer tries to do. This is an, uh, an arm of the World Health Organization. And uh, they put out a lot of documentation on, on cancer, mostly by looking at various kinds of chemicals that we encounter and determining what the risk is uh, associated with those particular uh, chemicals. The IARC, 
International Agency for Research on Cancer classification, put substances into four groups. Group one, these are substances that are known to cause cancer in humans. Obviously, something like tobacco would be in that category. Uh, group 2A, we'll talk about it in detail in a mom moment. These are probably carcinogenic. We don't know for sure. Group 2B, maybe carcinogenic. Group 3, not classifiable. Not enough studies known. And group 4, substances that are known not to cause uh, cancer. Interesting enough, only <laughs> one uh, compound ever was put into that uh, category. So let's take a bit of a closer look here. However, before we do that, what is really important to point out, before you get too scared with the discussion that is coming, is that the IR classification is based on hazard, not on risk. And hazard is the innate ability of a substance to do harm. So we know that smoking tobacco can do harm that's a hazard. But in order to evaluate the risk associated with this, you would have to take into account the amount of tobacco that is smoked. That is what is going to give you the risk. Obviously, someone who smokes one cigarette a month is not going to have the same risk as someone who smokes a pack a day. But the hazard of the smoking does not change because that just refers to the innate ability of, in this case, tobacco smoke to cause cancer. So hazard is a very important factor in risk analysis, but it is not the only factor because exposure has to be taken into uh, account. And what we are really interested in is not the hazard, but the risk, which is, is the measure uh, to which we have to pay attention because this documents what the risk is for any specific individual based upon their uh, exposure. So for example, group 2A, remember that we just mentioned that this is the probable carcinogen group. Hot beverages go into this category. Why? Because there have been studies done, mostly in South America, where they consume a lot of very hot tea, mate tea is a classic example. And they drink this at almost boiling temperature. And we know that that can damage the esophagus, that can trigger cancer of the esophagus. Uh, so this is put into group 2A, that this, this is a probable uh, carcinogen. However, in North America, uh, we don't worry too much about this. We don't consume our beverages boiling hot. And there is no significant increase in risk with uh, the beverages as we consume them. But nevertheless, hot beverages are in this category because they have the potential of causing cancer. The same thing goes for red meat. This is in the probable carcinogen category because there are some studies that have shown that if you eat significant amount of meat, generally a lot of meat, that is associated with an increase risk of, of cancer. So this is why red meat is said to be a hazard because it has the potential of causing cancer. But whether it does so in an individual obviously depends on the amount and furthermore on just how the meat is cooked and a bit more about that later. In the same category, group 2A, probable carcinogen, uh, are baked goods like bread because the baking process results in the formation of a substance called acrylamide, which is a known 
cancer-causing compound. But once again, it depends on how much is consumed. The profession of hairdressing is also in this category because hairdressers are exposed to a lot of hazardous materials. Uh, they use, for example, dyes. Uh, they inhale some of the spray, hair, hairspray. And uh, each of those substances individually is a hazard. Normally, that hazard is detected when test animals are exposed to large amounts. So this is why the profession of hairdressing is in the group 2A category. In group one, which is a known cancer-causing agent, uh, for example, is bacon. Exactly why bacon is, is carcinogenic is, is not all that clear. Again, we'll uh, discuss this uh, more detail in a few minutes. But there are a number of uh, epidemiological studies that have linked high consumption of, of bacon to uh, cancer. So we call bacon a hazard. But again, if you have a couple of strips of bacon a week, I don't think that that is a, a great issue for concern. But it's not something that you would, we, you would want to eat on a daily basis. So remember that this all sounds kind of scary because these things are all termed carcinogens by IARC. However, that's the hazard analysis. It basically shows that when bacon is given to test animals in very large doses, you can cause cancer, but it doesn't say really anything about human consumption because there you have to take dose into account. The same thing goes for alcohol. Uh, alcohol is a known carcinogen. It is linked with uh, cancer of the breast, cancer of the esophagus, cancer of the tongue. Question is, how much? Well, here it's, it's uh, noteworthy because it turns out that even small amounts of alcohol are associated with, with risk. Obesity is certainly associated with the incidence of cancer. And this is some, something that we certainly see in epidemiological studies. And unfortunately, overweight is a huge problem in North America. And obesity increases the risk of cancers of the esophagus, colon, rectum, breast, postmenopausal, uh, uterine cancer, kidney cancer. And this is one of the confounding factors when you take a look at carcinogens uh, in, in our diet. So uh, it may be, for example, that, that people who are consuming a lot of uh, bacon are also uh, grossly overweight. And it is the overweight that is causing the uh, susceptibility to cancer. But it is well known that uh, obesity is linked with all these forms of, of cancer. But unfortunately, with alcohol. Now, I said that alcohol is in group one. It is a known carcinogen. And uh, here, the question is, what kind of cancer and what sort of doses? Well, alcohol increases the risk of mouth cancer, cancer of the larynx, esophageal cancer, liver cancer, cancer of the breast. Each of these statistically are associated with alcohol consumption. And unfortunately, it turns out that there doesn't seem to be a safe amount of um, alcohol to, uh, to, to drink. Even very small amounts consumed regularly may be associated with, with cancer. And then you say, well, what about the benefits of red wine and on, on heart disease? 
Yes, that's a, a possibility. So in, in this case, uh, one component in, in uh, alcohol may be beneficial. Another component, the ethanol itself, is, is detrimental. Uh, but I think it is wise to, to uh, carefully control the amount of alcohol that is, is consumed because many of these studies show that even small amounts over the long term are associated with uh, uh, some form of, of cancer. Again, uh, an association uh, doesn't prove cause and effect because it is very difficult to get rid of all of the confounding factors. Generally, people consume alcohol, have other lifestyle differences as well uh, in terms of activity level, in terms of diet, uh, etc. Now, when it comes to meat, <clears throat> said that meat is in uh, group 2A, uh, meaning that it is a, a probable human carcinogen. And again, this comes from some animal studies and also some from human population studies. Now, a typical confounding factor here is the amount of fruits and vegetables that are consumed. So people who eat a lot of meat generally will eat fewer fruits and vegetables. So the question is, is the increased incidence of cancer due to eating the meat or due to the lack of fruits and vegetables in, in the diet. So this is what we call by confounding. One thing that we do know is that when meat is cooked, the higher the temperature, the more worrisome compounds are produced. All of these compounds are formed when meat is exposed to high temperature. Heterocyclic amines, benzopyrene, when these are given to animals, they will cause cancer. So these are reputable carcinogens, and they do form in the meat when the meat is cooked at a high temperature. There are all kinds of epidemiological studies that have been done uh, that focus in on uh, what people eat in terms of the amount of meat. In this particular study, as you can see, they estimate that you can uh, reduce the deaths in men um, as well as in women, although not exactly to the same extent, uh, by consuming less meat, by eating less than uh, half a serving of, uh, of red meat a day. Now, not every study uh, corroborates this. For example, this particular study, which is a very, very well carried out study, and it's been going on for a long time, uh, looking at 90,000 nurses over 18 years. And uh, in this case, 4,000 of them eventually uh, develop breast cancer. And then you take a look. Uh, what was it associated with? And in this case, there was no association with meat consumption. The ones who ate meat were just as likely to get uh, breast cancer as the ones who did not. But there was one very significant observation here that the risk increased with total calorie consumption. So the more food they ate, the greater the risk of, of, of cancer. And um, we know that longevity can be increased just by cutting back on calorie consumption. The less you eat, the more likely to, you are to live longer. Of course, then one you know, asks the question, then you know, is it worthwhile to live longer when you're not really enjoying life, when you're giving up everything that is worthwhile living longer for? Uh, but the point here is that not every study um, uh, agrees with the uh, consumption of, uh, of meat being a hazard. Now, when it comes to processed meats, there the, um, the evidence is, uh, I think, stronger. We 
have pretty significant uh, knowledge about this that um, eating processed meats and by processed meats we mean things like bacon, uh, the salamis, the, the hot dogs. Uh, this is associated with an increased risk of colorectal cancer. Now, remember that I'm constantly using this term associated with instead of cause, uh, because you cannot tease out all of the confounding factors. It's possible, of course, that people who are eating a lot of salami and a lot of bacon are consuming very little fruits and vegetables, and that's, that's the concern. Uh, it's also uh, possible that it's not the, uh, the meat itself that is the problem, but something to do with the processing, uh, which may be the nitrites that are, uh, that are involved. Uh, when you process these foods, sometimes you smoke them, you heat them at a high temperature, so you get these heterocyclic aromatic amines and the polycyclic hydrocarbons that we just talked about. But the processed foods are also preserved with nitrites. And in the body, nitrites convert to nitrosamines, which are known cancer-causing agents. It's also possible that it is the iron content in meat that is the guilty party, because uh, iron uh, can lead to the formation of free radicals. And these are these rogue species that can attack tissues in, in the body. So there is some concern about eating meat, particularly about processed meat. But uh, again, we really can't come to the conclusion that we should eliminate these from the diet. First of all, they do contribute some vitamins. They do contribute some uh, other nutrients as well. They contribute protein, for, for example. But uh, I think that we have enough evidence to, to cut back on the eating of red meat in North America. It doesn't mean that you can never eat these. Uh, I never like to say never uh, about eating any, any kind of food because it's always a question of amounts. I enjoy a hot dog now and then, especially if there's a you know, nice ball game in front of it, but I wouldn't eat that on a daily basis. Uh, so, Red meat consumption, I, I think, can be an issue and it should be cut down. One thing that you have to remember, though, is that so much of what we know about nutrition comes from uh, surveys, where people are given out these paper surveys, sometimes on, online, to fill out about what they ate over the last six months over, or over the last year. And you just tick off the boxes. How many hot dogs you ate over the last year? How many apples you ate over the last year? Well, these are notoriously unreliable for several reasons. One is that often people do not legitimately remember exactly what they ate. The only way to know exactly what you've consumed is to keep a daily diary and to fastidiously write down everything that you put into your mouth, including amounts. But here too, people are, are not very good at estimating amounts. When they're asked how many grams of such and such they ate, they, they can't really relate to that. And uh, unfortunately, there's also some misreporting, not necessarily maliciously, uh, but people tend to report foods that they think are healthy uh, more often than unhealthy foods. And we know, again, when we look at surveys, that it looks like people are eating more broccoli than the world is capable of producing because they feel a lot better on a survey admitting to eating broccoli than to eating a pile of hamburgers. So, of course, we do have to take all of this into account. 
And this is what you try to do in science. You try to take everything into account, try to, to, to uh, interpret the studies properly, tease out the important information, uh, and eventually by taking a look at all of the peer-reviewed literature published in, in uh, you know, top journals in the world, you hope to come to some sort of uh, conclusion. But nutritional science is, is, is very difficult. There are all kinds of different kinds of studies that can be done. Cohort studies, well, an example of that would be the nurses study that I just mentioned, where you take a large number of people and you follow them over a period of time to see what happens to them. And you follow their diet, you follow their lifestyle, and you follow their disease patterns. Then there are case control studies where you take a group of cases, for example, people who have breast cancer, and you take a look at their lifestyle over the last few periods, hopefully over a few decades, and compare it to a group of people who are perfectly matched except that they didn't have the disease. And you try to see what differences there are in their, in their life. Then we have uh, the so-called in vivo studies. In vivo means in life. And this generally refers to using laboratory animals uh, and feeding them and seeing what happens. The in vitro studies are laboratory studies that don't use uh, animals, but they use uh, perhaps cell cultures and see whether or not there's some component in a food that has an anti-cancer effect when you study it in cell culture. But the most uh, uh, reputable trials are the so-called intervention trials, where, for example, if you want to find out uh, if broccoli has any health benefit, you would have two groups of people and you would put them on very similar diet with the only difference being that one group was eating broccoli on a regular basis, while the other group was eating something else like lettuce uh, instead of it. And then you see whether or not there's any difference in this. These are the most difficult trials to carry out because you would have to do this for a very long time to see whether or not there's a difference in, in, uh, in cancer rates. It's a difficult, uh, trial to monitor, it's expensive, it's logistically difficult. So we don't have all that many interventional uh, trials. But uh, there still is evidence out there from all of these trials to try to come to some sort of a conclusion. So for example, that nurses health study that I just mentioned, that's what we call a typical cohort study. It began in 1976 with over 120,000 nurses and you monitor these people periodically. And for example, one bit of information here after 10 years was those who consumed the most foods that contained carotenoids, oh, these you know, things like, like tomatoes and, and carrots, had a reduced risk of, uh, of lung cancer. But they may have had other lifestyle differences as well. A typical case control study would be the, this uh, pancreatic cancer study where they took 179 patients who were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and they compare them with controls, same kind of age, same kind of socioeconomic background to see what the difference was. Well, it turned out in this case that the ones who suffered from pancreatic cancer were more likely to have consumed smoked and fried foods and fewer raw fruits and, and vegetables. So these are the kind of studies from which we glean the information that we then spread around. Well, if you look at smoked meat, for example, and in Montreal, of course, we do look at smoked meat. We do more than look at it. We eat smoked meat. 
Uh, Montreal is, is the heaven for smoked meat consumers uh, because we have a number of establishments that, that uh, make really high quality in terms of taste smoked meat. But it tastes very good. So right away, of course, you suspect that maybe it's not so good for us because that's sort of a rule of nutrition. The better it tastes, the less we should be eating of it. Well, smoke itself is a very, very complex mixture of chemicals. Here is a, just a, a glance at all the substances that are found when you burn wood in wood smoke. And a number of these are known carcinogens. So there's no question that when we're consuming uh, smoked foods, we are consuming carcinogens. And we do like the smoked foods. Let's face it, every day that you drive by Schwartz's, you will see a line outside. Although in this era of COVID, uh, they will be spaced out better. Uh, but uh, it's a very, very popular uh, food. And uh, we eat it despite the fact that we know that it has carcinogenic potential. And again, you don't want to eat this every day, but neither uh, do you want to completely deprive yourself of all the pleasures of life because there might be some small risk associated with it. And of course, when you have your smoked meat, commonly you would have French fries with it as well. And here we have a problem too, because when you fry the fries in oil, and uh, especially in oil that is very high in the so-called polyunsaturated fats like linoleic acid, you get uh, as a result of the frying, the high temperature uh, breakdown of the uh, polyunsaturated fat to form 4-hydroxy trans to non-enal. And uh, this is a compound that's a problem because when you give this to uh, animals and when you look at some human epidemiological studies, it is linked with heart disease, with stroke, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, liver problems, and unfortunately cancer as well. So, uh, here we take into account the kind of, of fat that is used in order to make the, the French fries. We don't want to go back to using beef tallow because that is almost completely a saturated fat. And we know enough about saturated fats uh, that these will cause heart disease. Uh, what would be better is to use peanut oil or olive oil. These are mostly monounsaturated fats, which are not likely to form the non-enal that I just talked about. Uh, and don't overuse them. When you do this at home, frying with these once is not a significant problem. In restaurants, however, they will reuse the oil. And every time that you heat it up again, you will form more of the non-enal. But of course, it's better to eat fewer French fries in the first place, uh, not only because of the carcinogens that we've just about, talked about here, but also because of the fat content. And remember that whether you're talking about monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, or saturated fat, there are calories there. So you're consuming a, a, a lot of calories. But this term carcinogen confuses a lot of people. What it means is that any substance that causes some sort of cancer in some animal at some dose can be so labeled, termed a carcinogen. It does not necessarily mean that it causes cancer in humans. It might at some dose. Consider coffee, for example. As you can imagine, this is a very complex mixture. It contains over a thousand compounds, some of which are known carcinogens. Things like acrylamide and benzene and styrene and furfuracafeic acid. 
When you give these in large doses to test animals, they're carcinogenic. But we know overall that coffee does not cause cancer. If it did, this we would know. There are enough people consuming coffee around the world. This would be known. So how come? Because these are, of course, there in vanishingly small amounts. And also coffee contains a lot of anti-carcinogens, polyphenols that are beneficial for us. But just to give you an idea of numbers, one of the compounds in coffee is furfural. And furfural is uh, a known carcinogen. But the question is how much? When you give this to rodents, indeed, it does cause cancer. There's no question about that. However, the question is how much? 200 milligrams per kilogram of body weight is what we're talking about. That is a lot. Humans do not consume this kind of, a, of an amount. So although it is labeled a carcinogen, we don't really worry about furfural because we're not consuming anywhere near the amount that is needed to cause cancer in rodents. The same thing for acrylamide. This is another one of the chemicals that we find in, in, in coffee. Not only do we find it in coffee, we find it in all foods where you have glucose and asparagine. Asparagine is a common amino acid. When you heat these two together, you get acrylamide. Not only in coffee, in bread. The crust of the bread, because of the glucose and the asparagine content, does contain some acrylamide. Are we going to then label bread as containing carcinogens? No. Why not? Because even though acrylamide is a hazard, the risk posed here is tiny. Why? Because when we make the calculation, we know that you'd have to eat about 6,000 loaves, 6,000 loaves of bread to have a significant amount of acrylamide. And with French fries, yes, they do contain the acrylamide. Uh, we saw this before in addition to the uh, noninal. But if you cut down the temperature at which the fries are cooked, you can also significantly reduce the acrylamide. And uh, this is now known in the industry. So they have cut down the temperature of, of, of frying. Uh, nevertheless, in, in California, because of the Proposition 65 they have there, anything that is known to be a carcinogen has to be brought to the attention of the public. And as you can see, if you buy French fries at McDonald's there, they will tell you of, that it contains acrylamide. But again, acrylamide is not added to the foods, as they will tell you. It's created whenever the potatoes are cooked. And uh, the amounts that are formed are, are very small. I think there's a bigger concern to be had with the fat that is in the fries than with the acrylamide. Furthermore, it's interesting that when you look at workers who are exposed to acrylamide in various industries, uh, it turns out that they do not show an increased incidence of cancer. And that generally is, is very meaningful because occupational exposure tends to be much higher than, than does uh, you know, occasional exposure by people who eat certain foods. But even with eating foods, I don't think we need to worry about the acrylamide. I, bagels, yes, of course, uh, they will contain small amounts, but I don't think we need to give up the bagel just because there's a trace of acrylamide there. It's always a question of taking a look at the numbers, taking a look at the amounts. Similarly, for beverages, colas. The color in cola comes from caramel coloring. Now, caramel is produced basically by burning sugar. And you produce a lot of compounds when you do that. And one of these, 4-methylimidazole, is definitely in the carcinogen category. 
but you have to give a lot of this to rodents in order to trigger cancer. And it does do that when you give it in very large doses. But interestingly enough, when it comes to mammary cancer, it decreases it. So there's all this confusing information. I think drinking soft drinks is not a good idea, mostly for the sugar content. I don't worry so much about the, the caramel coloring. So although this sounds scary, uh, I think that uh, you, know, uh, you can occasionally drink a glass of soft drink without worrying about the caramel coloring. But I think the sugar content, that's more worrisome because now we have a whole host of studies about this uh, from around the world. This one, a very well done study that showed that sugar drink consumption increases the risk of cancer. And uh, as you can see, what this study showed, consumption of sugar drinks, including fruit juice, associated with increased risk of overall cancer and breast cancer. And um, the numbers here are a little bit worrisome because it turns out that even just one glass can increase the risk of cancer, at least looking at the data that comes from uh, that particular study. So I think cutting down on all sorts of sugary beverages is, is a good idea. But still, if you have to make a choice between a glass of, of soft drink and a glass of orange juice, the orange juice is still better because in addition to the sugar, you're getting a variety of minerals and vitamins that can be beneficial. Now, some of those vitamins fall into the category of anti-carcinogens. These are substances that mostly in laboratory experiments have shown to reduce the risk of cancer. And uh, you've heard the term antioxidant. It's a very uh, important term when we look at nutrition because there are some oxidative materials, so-called free radicals that form generally as a byproduct of inhaling oxygen. You, we can't live without oxygen, but it seems we can't live with it either because uh, when we inhale oxygen, you form some very uh, reactive substances called free radicals. And uh, these species can um, uh, exist in the body generally for very short periods of time, but they are chemically very reactive uh, because they contain unpaired electrons and unpaired electrons are unhappy. They want to be paired with, with a partner. And uh, uh, what antioxidants do is they donate an electron to a free radical so that the free radical is now happy because it no longer is missing a, a partner. Now, there are thousands and thousands of antioxidants um, out there. These are found in fruits and vegetables. And antioxidants are free radical scavengers that reduce the amount of free radicals in, in our in our system. And there is a host of these, vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin C, elagic acid, we find that in tea, BHT, which is a preservative. All of these are antioxidants. So there's no shortage of antioxidants in the diet. Even maple syrup will contain antioxidants. However, numbers matter. Maple syrup is mostly sugar, although it does contain trace amounts of antioxidants which are enough so that marketers can make these kind of claims. But this is of course silly because the amount of antioxidant that is found in maple syrup is not enough to do anything. The amount of sugar in there, that's meaningful. So to suggest that maple syrup is good for your health is just outlandish. Maple syrup is good for your taste buds, but it is not good for your health.
When it comes to tea, for example, epigallocatechin gallate, the compound you're looking at here, a so-called polyphenol, also an antioxidant. Well, there are studies that show that people who drink a lot of green tea, especially green tea, have a reduced risk of certain cancers. Resveratrol is a compound that is found in, in red grapes. And this is one of the reasons that, that um, uh, people drink red wine, because resveratrol has been shown to reduce the risk of uh, uh, heart disease. Resveratrol is a powerful antioxidant. Now, it also may reduce the risk of, of cancer. However, when it comes to alcoholic beverages, I think the risk of the alcohol itself, the ethanol being a carcinogen, outweighs the benefits of the resveratrol. Berries are classic in terms of reducing uh, cancer risk in, in uh, animals. Uh, delphinidine is a compound found in many different berries. Uh, genistein is a compound found in soybeans. And uh, there are all kinds of studies on soy products in terms of, uh, of cancer, especially in terms of the estrogen-positive breast cancer. Estrogen is produced naturally in the body. And um, there are uh, inactive tumors uh, in the body that can be stimulated into activity when they are exposed to estrogen. They have what we call estrogen receptors. And when estrogen occupies these receptors, it starts a cavalcade of, of reactions that eventually result in cancer. Well, certain compounds in soy called isoflavones block those receptors and therefore reduce the risk of, of cancer. Not only breast cancer, prostate cancer is also a hormone-driven cancer. And soy consumption has been associated with a reduced risk of, of breast cancer. Uh, and there are a number of studies like this, but again, uh, unfortunately, they're not conclusive because in this study, for example, they showed that total soy intake, datesin, genistein, uh, and unfermented soy food intakes were significantly associated with reduced risk of prostate cancer. But fermented soy food intake, total isoflavone intake, circulating isoflavones were not associated with prostate cancer risk. Hard to know what to make of this uh, because uh, in another study, it was the fermented soy products that reduced the risk of, of mortality. I think the only conclusion that we can have here is that there's certainly no reason to avoid soy foods. In the case of breast cancer, most of the studies show that when soy products are consumed uh, around the early years of puberty, they will go on to protect against uh, uh, breast cancer. So soy should not be looked at as a miracle food uh, nor as, as a poison. It should be eaten like any other food. The reason that um, soy seems to be beneficial for breast cancer is because of genistein and the dates. And these are the compounds that I mentioned before, which block those estrogen uh, receptors. Does this mean that we should be taking supplements? At this point, no. There are no studies that I've seen that have shown that taking supplements of these has any benefit. Because you have to remember that when you're eating soy, you're not eating only the isoflavones. You're consuming the dozens and dozens of other compounds that are found in the soybean. And it may be that it's some of the others that are beneficial. We don't really know. What we know is that having soy in the diet uh, is a good thing to do. But again, you don't want to overdo it. Same thing goes for tomatoes. I mean, we can tease out some information here. Tomatoes contain lycopene. And uh, this is a carotenoid. 
And for example, I can point you towards a study that showed that uh, these patients uh, were given uh, lycopene before they underwent surgery for prostate problems and they did better. So there you go. But they were given a lot of uh, lycopene. They weren't just told to eat tomatoes. In the health professionals follow-up study, this is one of these cohort studies following 50,000 men. And as you can see, the men who consumed uh, less than a, one and a half servings a week uh, of uh, tomato products uh, uh, did worse. That is, uh, it, the more tomato products you consume, they lower the risk of, uh, of prostate cancer. But again, the question is, what other lifestyle factors did they have? So obviously a headline like this, that ketchup prevents cancer, just because there was that lycopene study, this is really uh, misguided. Here's a, another problem. You can look at virtually any fruit or vegetable independently and take a look at a compound that they contain and you will find some study that usually in a laboratory experiment in an animal or in cell culture showed some benefit. Lignans. These are found in plants. All kinds of, of uh, plants, for example, flax seeds, uh, contain lignans. And uh, these have, again, uh, at first in the laboratory, uh, uh, anti-cancer effect. But uh, there are some human studies that are worthwhile as well. Uh, this one carried out by Lillian Thompson, University of, of Toronto, where they actually gave flaxseed uh, uh, muffins to breast cancer patients. And what they found was that there was a, a reduced incidence of the return of the cancer if they ate 25 grams of ground flaxseed mixed into a, a muffin every day. Uh, we, of course, need more studies like this. Uh, you never hang your hat on one study, but it certainly is, is interesting. Uh, and it was a study that showed for the first time that mo dietary modifications, such as with flax seeds, uh, you know, can have an effect on uh, tumor growth. So certainly nutrition is important. But you don't want to overplay uh, this card. For example, this, this um, uh, book on Miracle of Garlic. Uh, they will point out that uh, in Italians, uh, in some areas of Italy, not all areas, there's a low rate of stomach cancer. And this uh, supposedly is because of all the onions and the garlic that they use. So this study concluded, this uniquely large data set from Southern European population shows an inverse association between the frequency use of allium vegetables and the risk of several common cancers. Uh, garlic will also keep vampires away. Uh, the active ingredient in uh, garlic is uh, allicin. And when you cook the garlic, uh, uh, this breaks down and releases the supposed anti-cancer compounds. So putting garlic into your food, yeah, good idea. Here's another study, case control study, uh, where they looked at people with cancer and they matched them against a population with no cancer. And they found that the uh, cancer victims ate fewer allium vegetables, less uh, garlic, less onion. And this was in, in Puerto Rico, where part of the diet was very high in sofrito. And uh, the uh, people who were eating sofrito were the ones who had fewer cases of cancer. What is sofrito? It's basically a vegetable concoction. It has cilantro. It has various different kinds of peppers, onion, garlic. Uh, and uh, when you mix this all together, uh, it gives you a lot of uh, polyphenols, a lot of antioxidants.
Then there are questions about turmeric, which is the root of a plant. It has a compound in it called curcumin. Again, in uh, laboratory studies, this has uh, cancer retarding uh, properties. Uh, it is a very yellow powder when you grind it up. It is used to give mustard its color. It's used in cooking mostly for color. There are studies here that show that in large concentrations, it has an effect on cancer in the laboratory and test animals. However, unfortunately, when we consume turmeric orally, the bioavailability is very poor, very poor. Means that it does not get into the bloodstream to do whatever activity it, uh, it needs to do. So at this point, there's precious little evidence about the benefits of, uh, of, of turmeric. Uh, broccoli, broccoli is said to be nature's cancer fighter because it contains glucofuranin, which in the body converts to sulforaphane. And again, in laboratory evidence, there is an anti-cancer property here because it induces the formation of enzymes which remove toxins from the body. And there have been a number of studies, again in animals, they were fed sulforaphane, then they were given a cancer-causing agent, and the sulforaphane reduced the incidence of, of cancer. What does it mean for humans? Not much. We'd have to have a long-term study where a group was eating broccoli, the other group wasn't, virtually undoable. But by all means, eat broccoli, especially broccoli sprouts, young broccoli. That's the richest source of sulforaphane. And uh, you know, this is where we have some studies. Uh, sulforaphane added to cultured human cancer cells demonstrated protection against cancer, but that's in the cell culture. And the body is more than just a test tube. It's more than just a collage of, of, of cells. Indole-3-carbonyl is found in cabbage. And again, cabbage is said to have anti-cancer properties, but basically all vegetables and all fruits are uh, protective. That's what we have to focus in on. Whether or not uh, spices add to it, probably, because spices also have a lot of polyphenols. Should we be eating organic or conventional? Well, a recent study that came out in France showed that people who eat organic 25% less likely to get cancer. However, you've got to read in between the lines. You have to make sure that you're correcting for all confounding factors about the amount of meat they eat, etc. And it turns out when you do this, when you correct for all of the factors, you conclude that among participants who had a diet of high overall quality, namely eating lots of fruits and vegetables, there was no difference in cancer rates. It didn't matter if they ate organic or conventional. So as long as you're eating enough fruits and vegetables, it doesn't matter. The real takeaway message is to eat your fruits and vegetables, whether they're conventional or whether they are organic. So to summarize, in order to try to reduce the risk of cancer, you wanna maintain body weight, be physically active, you cut down on sugar, salt, and processed meats, you cut down on the amount of red meat, limit alcohol intake, limit fat to less than 30% of calories, don't cook at very high temperatures, use lots of spices, and eat five to 10 servings of fruits and vegetables every day. So when you have to make the choice between eating a lot of the so-called fast food or junk food, or the lots of vegetables and fruits and berries, you know the direction that we should take. 
And uh, that's the best advice that I can give you. But let's not be neurotic about this because eating is only one factor in disease. Genetics are very important. What we breathe is important. What the activity levels are, are important. But at least we have some control over the food that we put into our mouth. And if you have any further questions, certainly you can look on our website. We have lots of information. Or you can just email me at joe.schwartz at mcgill.ca. And uh, maybe we can uh, try to unconfuse some of this uh, confusing business because indeed nutrition is a very confusing matter. But I hope that I've at least been able to give you a touch of insight into this very complex area and uh, uh, imply how important it is to consume our fruits and vegetables. So thanks very much for uh, your attention. Thank you, Dr. Joe. We have a question um, uh, from the audience and I'd just like to remind everybody that if you're watching live on Zoom, you can press the Q&A button and type in your question, or you can press the raise hand button and you can answer, ask the question live uh, with your microphone. So we're gonna unmute the microphone of uh, Howard. Uh, Howard, if you are there and you unmute your microphone, you can ask Dr. Schwartz your question. Go ahead. Yes, Dr. Schwartz, um, they're saying now, it, it, there's something in uh, Mongolia or China, bubonic plague, uh, and, now, and also swine flu in China, along with that could become epidemic. Should we worry about these things coming to North America? Yes, of course we worry about these things. I mean, we obviously have uh, the very real example of, of the uh, uh, COVID disease that originated in, in Wuhan. And there's a recent finding of a possible other, uh, other disease, again, a viral disease that, uh, may have jumped from pigs to humans. So yeah, we're keeping an eye on that. Uh, but right now, our big worry, of course, is COVID. But what about the bubonic plague that they found in Mongolia? Should we worry about that in North America? I, I, oh, I, that, I've, I, that I've not seen. I mean, bubonic plague uh, is a very rare disease. I mean, there have been occasional outbreaks, uh, but no, I haven't seen that. Uh, I'd have to look into that, Ivan. And what, what do you make of Trump saying 99% of coronavirus will, go, will just go away? Well, I, Trump, of course, uh, what, what can I tell you? Anyone who listens to me knows that I'm no friend of Trump. I, I think he's an ignorant man uh, who has no knowledge about science, uh, no knowledge about anything, including politics. Uh, anything that he says, you can discard. Uh, to say that 99% is inconsequential is, is ridiculous, ridiculous. But do you think the media, I mean, I, I don't like Trump at all, but do you think the media sometimes uh, it gets overly hysterical when they report about coronavirus? I wish that were true, but I don't think that that is true. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you've followed me over the years, you know that I'm, I'm certainly not a fear monger. I, if anything, I try to lean in the other direction. Uh, but in this case, I, I think uh, uh, COVID is as serious as it is made out. Okay, thank you, Howard. We have a question from Larry or Jana. Go ahead. Uh, thank you very much for an excellent lecture. Uh, I'm wondering with the barbecue season upon us. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't barbecue every day. Uh, I, I think I'd limit it to once a week. And would you pre-treat the meat somehow? Oh. Yes, uh, that's a very good question. Generally, if you uh, uh, 
put the meat before in vinegar, for example, or any, you know, any kind of a, a barbecue sauce, you marinate the meat before, uh, you're less likely to form any kind of carcinogen. Thank you. That's a good idea. Okay, unfortunately, I, I got to go because I do have an appointment. But if, if anyone uh, has any more questions, remember that you can always email me. It's joe.schwartz at mcgill.ca, and I'll answer any question. Thank you, Dr. Schwartz, and thank you to everyone who joined us on Zoom. And uh, just a reminder, you can call in every day at 2 p.m. on the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and hear talks like this. We have a lot of very good talks on other topics that I think you'll enjoy too. So have a great day, everyone. Thank you very much.